volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. As you may know, we're interrupting season two of Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast so that we can share some resources, some toolkits, and frameworks to help you, your leaders, and our community through this crisis. Hi, my name is Sal Sylvester. Thanks for joining me today. Yesterday was my mom's 80th birthday, and my brothers threw an incredible virtual party, complete with food that they shipped out to everybody, cake, an online game show, and more. And it was just this really fun and beautiful event. But I also felt a deep level of sadness, not just because I couldn't be there for my mother, but there was a sense of loss and grieving that I could feel really for the whole world. People have lost so much. Things have changed so much for so many folks. We're about seven or eight weeks into this crisis now in Colorado. And I've noticed that as I've talked to clients globally, that the topic of mental health, the topic of loss and grieving it's starting to come up more and more as we continue to move through this crisis. The challenge for managers is to be aware of issues that might come up in mental health in the workplace, and also not to step into the role of counselor or therapist where they might not be qualified. So we thought we'd record an episode on this important topic and really talk about three things. Number one, what's a normal response that people have to trauma? Number two, what should managers do about it and maybe not do about it? And number three, how can you take care of yourself so that you can ultimately lead and take care of other leaders effectively? And number three, how can you take care of yourself so that you can be there for others and lead others effectively? I'm joined today by my business partner and good friend, Barry Shapiro. Barry is an amazing executive coach, but Barry started his career running psychiatric wards. And he brings in a unique perspective on the topic of mental health, trauma, and grief as a psychotherapist and as a leader who has experience within medical treatment facilities. And by the way, Barry and I created a tool to help you implement the concepts that we're going to talk about in this episode today. We call the tool the Manager Survival Guide During the Global Pandemic. You can download this four-page toolkit for free on our website at www.512solutions.com. Just head out to the episode page in the podcast section of the website. All right, let's head out to the interview now with Barry Shapiro. So Barry, clearly these are unprecedented times where for you and I in Colorado, we're what, seven or eight weeks into this pandemic. That's right. And we're both starting to notice more and more of our clients talking about the mental health aspect of what people are going through. What are you noticing in your work and our work together? What are some of the things that are popping up for you around mental health? So I'm noticing three things in particular. First of all, one, vast differences in how leaders are assessing risk, which can lead to division lines in either a company 
or country. So that certainly can lead to confusion. The second, inconsistent messages across the same company. So report to work versus stay at home. And that leads sometimes in terms of mental health to pretty significant feelings of guilt, Mm -hmm. also confusion, and particularly managers who are following executive orders, even though they don't agree with the direction given. So they're in this really strange twist between following the company direction and really not always fully being on board. That can create stress. The third is an obvious no clear end date. There are relaxing of these guidelines, certainly. But the problem is that that increases stress also. We can tolerate as human beings a tremendous amount of pain, suffering, if we know when it's over. Prison sentences, war. If you know generally what the objective is, and we know that to some extent, but not consistently. So Mm -hmm. huge differences in assessing risk, inconsistent messages, no clear end date. And what this leads to is confusions, breaches or differences between people, and then also increased stress without question. Lack of sleep, waking up in the middle of the night, things like that, anxiety and depression. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was talking to my wife, Rachel, this weekend and to your third point around no clear end date, that was part of what we were talking about. Like Mm -hmm. if we just knew it was going to be done in September or December 31st was our date, it would be a lot easier for us to be able to cope with and, and deal with. It's a really good point. And what we're finding is that employees appreciate and they feel much more comfortable when they have what we call roadmap sequencing. Meaning, if people know on Thursday a particular decision will be made, or Monday at 2 p.m. executives are meeting to at least discuss and determine how to relax either boundaries or constraints, people feel more comfortable. They have real and or perceived control, which we know is correlated to people feeling a little bit better. We're figuring out some ways based on feedback from employees directly, based on some trial and error. not only unprecedented, there's just not a lot of data for it, except when you look in the clinical world, because we're moving toward those kind of challenges. These are not just employee standard work challenges. These are, in my opinion, moving more toward clinical, personal, emotional challenges. Yeah, Yeah, I, I think you're right. And on top of all those areas, there is also an unprecedented level of personal anxiety that's happening. So, as I look out my office door here at home, my six-year-old and three-year-old are going through some form of homeschooling. We're very fortunate that my wife's at home and she's able to really handle that, but it's stressful. And there are people where both parents or both partners are working and trying to homeschool kids or someone is at home that is immune compromised or there's an elderly person at home or there's Mm -hmm. economic and financial stress. Like there are a number of personal burdens that I think are adding to the mental health concerns, if you will. Case in point, Lydia, my wife, asked me earlier today, who's going to receive the delivery of groceries? I'm trying trying to coordinate with coaching sessions and facilitated sessions. When does that even happen? The mechanics of how to make that happen. And look, I think any coach, any facilitator and leader worth their salt 
experiences and or talks about it also. We're not immune to that. Mm -hmm. uh, just like counselors are not immune to being depressed and anxious. In fact, oftentimes they have more experience with it, part of what could drive them into the field in the first place. And I know you and I are driven by a keen sense of curiosity and, and trying to get to root causes of things. We want to call that out too. I mean, I, I feel all of that. I feel the obvious excitement of what can be. I'm a creative guy, so I look for what can we do differently than others have done? How do you make virtual experiences more engaging? So yes. that part gets activated. The stress for me gets activated with my own kids, Sophia and Ruby. They're three years old and 10 months old, right? They have, a, they have a, oh, well, thank you. I'm biased, but <laughs> thank you. They're <laughs> relentless in their yeah. own needs, which dial up during these times and finding the rhythm so I can sleep well and I can be of service to people. But I think, I think we have to realize that too, that I think the best of us helping have to be as much personally aware of what the heck is going on with us as it is being, we're cured, we're fine, we've got it figured out, let me help you. Yeah. And I find that like anything else, you can relate better to people, all of us can, when we know that it's normal to not feel normal, even the best of us, the most clear of us, and so on. So yeah. I think that's a, a secondary, third level, next level of experience. Yeah. And it is normal to not feel normal. I think part of what we want to talk about today is it's helpful as a survival guide, if you will. It's helpful for people to realize that there is a normal response to trauma, yes. like what we're going to. And part of what you and I have leaned into during this crisis with our clients is the Kubler-Ross grief cycle right. that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about in her book on grief and grieving. And there's five phases to this cycle. Barry, maybe you can just lay that out for us. Sure. And then that's step one. Then we'll get into how a manager might respond in each of those stages. Sure. So the first question is obviously, why the hell would you have a death and dying model in leadership ever? The question is, what are you losing? Yeah. Because it's a model based on a response to loss of significant types. And usually it's death of a loved one or something similar. And what, what we're finding here is it's loss of certainly normality or normalcy. And that's part of what gets triggered. So without question, it's a traumatic event. It's a traumatic event personally. It's a traumatic event organizationally. It's a traumatic event economically, financially. So in these five cycles that people may be really familiar with, intuitively, if not explicitly, denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. And the first phase, denial, this is not happening. This will be over quickly. This is like a flu. It's no different. And in fact, it's probably less extreme. At a certain point, the reality is it's not just like something else. It is significant. Yeah. And we move from most people not quite staying at home, certainly, to people in lockdown, with very few exceptions. And what happens there is a frustration, a level of anger, which is, why am I doing this? Is this even the right thing? And who's driving this major change? It's affecting my wallet. And then there's a level of anger. The third is depression, meaning... Anger, Freud said this, is, as some people may know, anger turned inward is depression when it's not focused outward. Mm -hmm. And usually that's what happens. 
So the third stage that we can go through is a sense of hopelessness, sadness, or even the free-floating, not feeling great. It's sort of the blues. And it's not necessarily connected to anything that you can tell beyond the obvious event that's happening. Finally, there's this bargaining stage where you say, well, maybe, maybe if I don't go out to the bank and the grocery store and I do that for a week, maybe I'll be okay. Maybe I can just change my behavior a bit. And there are these series of bargaining tools or hopes in order for it to get better. And then finally, at a certain point, you realize, you know what? This is the current state. We're in a groove. Everybody is. Who else has been affected? I mean, think about this. An event singularly in human existence that has affected every human being on the planet and brought every motion to its knees within 70 days, if that. And at a certain point, there's some acceptance. And that's when the emotion actually comes down, not up. So denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance, usually associated with loss, death, and dying. In this case, loss of the normal life that you had just a couple months ago. Yeah, so there's this grief that we're all facing for any number of reasons. And by the way, a great article and recently in the Harvard Business Review, that discomfort you're feeling is grief. And inside of that article, the author talks with David Kessler, who wrote on grief and grieving with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And he talks about there's several different types of grief that people might be feeling, and one of which is anticipatory grief. Grief that is something that we're anticipating in the future that we don't even know might be happening, or we may make up stories about where the world is going or worst case scenario, or our our brains are wired to survive. So there's this anticipatory factor that can also come into play. It's a good point. The Mark Twain statement about horrible things have happened to me in my life, some of which have actually occurred. Yeah, right. right? And all of us can relate to that. And some of us, particularly those of us who are highly driven, perfectionist oriented, wanting to control outcomes, part of that is what makes a great manager. Yep. But under these conditions, it can be brutally painful and misdirected. Yeah. So let's talk about the model, denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance, and shift a little bit to what can managers do? Because I think part of what we're seeing with our clients is managers are starting to cross a line a little bit here between being a coach versus being a counselor. And there are things that managers should and should not do. In that denial phase where it's not uncommon to see avoidance or confusion, sometimes maybe even elation. I remember at the earliest stages of this pandemic, like it was kind of exciting in this weird way, but then shock and fear at the same time. What might we notice in some of our employees at this denial phase and what should we be doing as managers? Some of the behaviors are avoidance, discounting or a minimizing of Mm -hmm. the events that are occurring. And in order to respond, a manager needs to decide if she or he needs to refer out. So here's a new line for managers, which is employee assistance programs, counseling, which is a different type. That's not coaching. That's not managing. And there are people who are similarly skilled in that area around which we refer. So a manager, for example, if somebody's in denial, work avoidance, fatigue, weakness, et cetera, can do a couple of things. One, show data. 
raw, mm-hmm. hard, non-interpretation data about the current situation and impact as we think about it on people and or process and or the business. The second is tell people what you know and what you don't know. And so you're basically giving them information around which they can continue in denial or rationalization, or they can open up as sometimes happens in management conversations where there's new information and they change. They're not living in denial. And you can also show the impact that they have on others. So a reluctance to accept a brutal fact in business can tank a business or can affect hundreds or thousands of employees. So your ability to show cause and effect, again, without judgment, simply cause and effect can be helpful in that state. There isn't a playbook right now to address the complexity in our work environment. More than ever, leaders need other leaders to share strategies and tactics, ideas, and action plans. That's why we started our Leadership Coaching Circle. It's a six-month program that provides a platform for an exclusive group of already successful senior leaders to support each other, to accelerate their development, and to navigate change together. Each Leadership Coaching Circle is comprised of hand-picked cohorts of four to six senior leaders. The program includes a monthly leadership exchange to elevate leadership skills and gain insights from other successful senior leaders, It includes one executive coaching session per month to address the targeted needs that each participant might have. There's a peer coaching element to it, and of course, access to our Coach Metrics platform for leadership frameworks, communication, session notes, and other resources. If you're interested in applying to be part of our Leadership Coaching Circle program, our next cohort's gonna start in the next 30 days. Send us an email at info at 512solutions dot com info at 512solutions.com as you mentioned as emotions go up or we shift out of that denial phase into anger and, and anger might look differently we might notice frustration or anxiety or irritation from our team members how should a manager respond in that situation? So this is a tricky one because this is the most provocative, scary one. When you have Mm -hmm. employees that are previously pretty calm, angry, lashing out, you should look for that. Repeated examples of that, blaming. And one of the things that can be helpful, time boxed, time limited venting. Five minutes, three minutes, not 20, not an hour because they can turn into that. Mm -hmm. Second, validate the emotions, meaning whatever words you want to use. I hear it. You're angry. You're you're pissed off here. You're not colluding or agreeing. You're validating. And validating emotion, even though some managers are hesitant to go straight into the fire and address that emotion, neutralizes the emotion, actually subdues anger often. And then finally, you can imagine, give people places to channel it, tasks, objectives, things that people are interested in already in terms of helping other employees or the business or structure so that you can use that energy instead of blunting it and preventing it, help it flow almost like a, an Aikido. You're not mm-hmm. pushing back like the martial art. You're using that energy, redirecting it productively into some kind of outcome in business or with people. Interesting. The, the five to 10 minute venting strategy. I was on the a line with a client last week and they talked about, they created a Slack channel 
they called it the not always rosy channel. And so it was an opportunity yeah. for people to release some emotion around, hey, the kids are driving me crazy or mm-hmm. I can't find flour or milk in the store. But there's this opportunity of like short time limited periods where people can release that emotion. It's great. I love it. I, yeah. I mean, it's a great idea. This leads into that third around depression. You have to make sure it's mm-hmm. safe also. Yeah. There's a heightened level of concern, of fear, depending on the person. And by the way, this is a huge spectrum. Some people are considering this whole event not that important, overblown, media-driven. Yes. And other people are literally, I'm not using it as hyperbole, they're literally cowering at home, not wanting to leave. So you have to remember that people do have radically different reactions to this. But in either case, even in this next phase, the depression, people keeping distance from others, lack of motivation, concerns about their own health, safety, stability of the organization. Mm -hmm. You want to, again, tell what you know, don't say what you don't know, but tell people what you're doing to keep things as stable as possible is one. Encouraging people to spend more time with people that they normally do by phone, Slack, video, people can isolate, even really strong extroverts can isolate a lot more than you might imagine. So those are some of the emotional supports, whereas the first two stages are inform and communicate. The third stage around depression, what a manager can do is provide emotional support to a limit, right? When these things continue, that's when you refer out. When people are saying, for example, I'm going to hurt myself or others. I feel so hopeless that it's not even worth it anymore. Statements like that are triggers for managers to say, let me get either HR, employee assistance program involved, at least as a referral. Same with anger. When there are elements of violence or suggested, I want to break this damn window, I'm so pissed. Those kind of statements should be triggers to then consider who else can help? And it's really beyond the scope of typical, obviously, manager responsibilities. Yeah. And so I think that's the line, really, where managers have to be careful not to slip into from coaching to counseling and to use the resources that are available in their companies. I think that's right. The fourth phase, the bargaining phase, we typically will see rationalization or people struggling to find meaning Sometimes they'll be reaching out to others or telling one story about what's happening in their situation. What do managers do here? Yeah, so this is a different kind as all of them are. This is to help people find some meaning or reminders of what Mm. they find value in doing in general. And the guidance here can be the reminder of their positive impact on people processing the business. It's not a negative, they're doing harm. They can be extremely valuable. They can be so valuable to people who are in another phase or stage, in anger, in depression. And that's where you get a series of peer coaching. It's a whole other simple level where you can have people support each other. We know that physiology, agitation, anger is typically lower when people feel connected to people other than themselves, when they're not so self-focused. So to us, or at least what I'm finding in my work is, look for networks of people to connect to Mm -hmm. each other and so that they can get out of that bargaining, that uh, rationalization and distraction 
and more in a sort of supportive environment, which does happen at work. You just don't see those networks in the same way remotely. Yeah, I think more than ever, leaders need other leaders to support each other with insights and action and tactics and strategies on how to deal with what's happening. There is no playbook for responding to this. So as the emotions finally come down and we move to that last phase of acceptance, we'll typically see more openness, people seeking help and support. What's the role of the manager here? Yeah. Well, certainly you want to reinforce this positive outcome as much as you want to spend the time in the negative. You don't want to ignore either, but you want to help people understand how they got there. So there's something called a thought work cycle that we'll often map with our clients, which shows what event occurs, what stressor occurs, and what their response is. And it's either really adaptive, helpful, healthy, or not. And what do they want it to be? What's the healthier response, the non-blaming, non-angry response? And every one of us has a slightly different version of that. And so managers can help people see what that linkage is, which is, how did you get to acceptance? You were just angry last week. I've never seen you that angry. How'd you get here? And so both for the employee, her or himself, and or again, peer coaching. How do you help other people get to that place as well? Because we know people respond best to stress, even unusual stress like this, when they're in a state of more openness, rational thinking, preparedness, rest, and so on. And so I think it's helping people understand how they got there. And then ultimately, as all of these suggestions are, how do you then help? We talk about scaling the business. How do you scale health? How do you scale coping? Yeah, And our call to action to all leaders is take those skills that you have in scaling and building and apply it here. Almost like GM and other retrofitting businesses and industries building masks and ventilators. Elon Musk and the work that he and, and his companies are doing. How do you then take that skill and apply it to helping people yeah. in a different way, but in the same organization? Yeah, and I think there's a role here for leaders to make it safe to talk about mental health. Uh, CEO of one of the clients that we work with told everyone, clear your calendar and take a day of PTO this Friday. And by the way, show us a picture of what you did. So just the modeling of that, the requiring people to just talk about it, get it out there, making it okay, giving people permission, if you will, to make this topic of mental health a safe place is I think really critical. Good point. So mental health, we think, is correlated to long-standing performance, Mm -hmm. meaning people in bad states of mental health can be more highly productive. So bipolar disorder, for example, people can be really have these bursts of productivity for a week or a month, and they can often crash. So we get fooled sometimes into thinking that certain types of mental illness or mental health challenges off kilter is somehow better. It's short term. So we know that correlated that people who are healthier, happier, better rested, doing what they want to do, what they're great at doing, are long-term better performers. So we're starting to see these correlations between higher levels of mental health, higher productivity, over time. That's the key. Tied to higher morale, tied to lower undesirable turnover. Mm -hmm. Nobody's poaching 
are great people because they want to be there and they're highly engaged. Yeah. So I, I think in the last couple of minutes, Barry, I think that leads us naturally to the next step, which is none of us are immune from this. We have to also help ourselves as leaders, yeah. just like a flight attendant might say to us, hey, you need to put your own oxygen on first before you put the oxygen on for your child or other person that's sitting next to you. How do we help ourselves through this trauma and through this grief that we're facing? probably people know some of the go-tos. There's a trio of reminders. One, sleep regularly and get enough rest, even if that involves some people take naps, some people right. disconnect and go for a walk or dial off work for a period of time. Rest is number one. Number two, eat well and regularly. You'll notice a theme here, which is consistency whether it's in performance and mental health and mm -hmm. or in fueling yourself, not missing meals. Well, I was on Zoom or video calls back to back for six hours. I just forgot. I didn't even eat. And make sure that that doesn't happen. Yes. Uh, number three, in terms of these breaks, some people get really charged by meditating, napping, walks, distractions, watching videos, for five minutes of something of great interest to you in between two meetings, for example. And the third or fourth is exercise. You can define that however you want through yoga, through vigorous exercise, yeah. running, treadmills, and so on. For prolonged periods, as people know, 20 minutes or longer, 30 minutes. And then finally, clear lines of demarcation. If you're working mm -hmm. at home like most of the country is People are right now. When are you off? And a lot of us, again, who are highly driven, don't tend to turn it off ever. I mean, we're speaking from experience. So those are a couple of reminders. And then as you made reference to earlier, and we talked about others, make sure that you're sharing experience with others. That alone yeah. brings physiology, anxiety, depression down. When it's a shared understanding or burden, and you're not on your own. That's directly related to stress. So any of these counters, so sleep, eating, breaks, exercise, clear lines of demarcation, and sharing it with other people. Yeah, I think that's really great. For me, part of what has been most difficult, I think, is because I, I think about all of this as self-care, is has been giving myself the permission to do that. And my tendency under stress is to get more focused, to get more disciplined, to work twice as hard. And I think in all of this, there's a lot of common sense ways that you just listed out that we can help ourselves so that ultimately we can help other people. Yeah, well said. Barry, it's been great having you on the show. You're an incredible friend and colleague and business partner. And I know that there's going to be some nuggets in here to help our clients and others work through this traumatic experience. Great, great to hear. Thank you, Sal. Thanks for being part of this and including me. And I look forward to our next conversation. Sounds good. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining me today to talk about the future of leadership. Don't forget that you can get our free toolkit to help you implement the concepts that Barry and I talked about in this episode today. We also have a number of other free toolkits on our podcast page to help you and your people through this time, including how to lead with inspiration in a virtual environment and leading through crisis. 
Just go out to our podcast episode page on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. We will get through this extraordinary event together. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.